before we moved here to this community, Beth and I belonged to a church in a pretty rough neighborhood in Minneapolis. The uh, parking lot was too often location for drug deals and uh, car thefts and assaults and uh, even the occasional stray bullet from time to time. There was uh, not many dull moments in that setting. I've talked to, uh, referred to some of these stories in the past, but it was a, really an interesting period of, of our life. One case in point, Sunday morning, broad daylight, I was one of the last people to leave the church building. This started a long time ago for me, but I was uh, leaving there. There wasn't really hardly anyone around. The doors were locked to the outside, but as I exited from the inside, of course, a young woman came rushing toward me from the parking lot and anxiously asked permission to enter the building. She was visibly shaken. And in that neighborhood, you always watched what you were doing and never really trusted anyone. Uh, so I was kind of curious about it all. But then I realized that she was being followed by an angry and very unstable man. I held the door for her and let it close behind me so that she was locked inside. And then I stopped the man on the sidewalk out in front of the, um, out in front of the building. He was loud. He was dirty. He was probably high on something uh, from the night before, and he was very upset. He made it clear to me that he wanted to hurt that woman behind the door. Uh, I just talked very calmly to him. I don't know if the words of Proverbs went through my mind, but I thought a soft answer turns away wrath, and I'm going to need to try everything I can think of here. So I talked very calmly, suggested that maybe it was good for him to just keep moving, and he finally, thankfully, agreed to do so. But as he walked away, he said that the only reason that he would leave her alone was that she was on God's ground. I assume by that he meant on church property. If she ever left God's ground, he assured me that he was quite prepared to let her have it. Well, up to that point, I'd been playing the role of the gentle peacemaker, but now we're talking theology. <laughs> And he was, saying, uh, he was saying that God's ground ended at the property line of the church. It may not have been the better part of wisdom, but I, I just couldn't let that one go. And so as he's walking away, muttering, staggering in his unstable situation, this nonsense about God's ground, God's ground, I yelled after him that he better understand that all ground was God's ground. I remember something of the conversation. I said, you step your foot off of this property, you touch that street, that's God's ground too. I said, you go over that street on the other side, that's God's ground too. Anywhere that you walk is going to be God's ground today and the rest of your life. Well, the next thing you know, we were fighting in the parking lot. <laughs> He's loudly insisting that only church land is God's ground, and I'm waxing eloquent in the idea of the omnipresence of God to this person who can't even understand two things. But... You know, he went on and everything was fine, as far as I know, but, you know, the sad thing is that man had a better theology than a lot of people in our secular culture. He at least had some sense that God was somewhere. And in this world, that God occupies some place. The sizable majority of people in America believe firmly in the existence of God, but for far too many, he's merely the God that's up there, stuffed away in heaven neatly, perhaps to be awakened through prayer from time to time when we're in big trouble. But one thing is certain, God is not here. This is, there, there is no ground that is holy. There is no divine presence here. God is not in this place 
that we call earth. And don't be fooled, believer. Living in such a culture affects us. It influences us in this secularized world. With a twisted sense of reality, we can go to the store, we can make a purchase, and never once think about God. We can watch a television show, drive to work, wash the dishes, and we can be completely oblivious to the reality that God stands next to us. We can encounter trials and problems and be overwhelmed with a deep sense of loneliness and hopelessness. Because in practical terms at least, God may be at church, but He's nowhere else in our world. We are oblivious to God all too often. That's precisely the state in which we find Jacob as he leaves his father Isaac and mother Rebekah here in Genesis 28. Remember, having stolen his brother's blessing, Jacob is fleeing from Esau. Chapter 27, if you skim there, verse 41 and following, 27-41, Rebekah discovers Esau's plot to murder Jacob. She encourages Jacob to escape her brother Lab- to, to her brother Laban in Haran. Somewhat deceitfully gets Isaac in on the situation, uh, kind of deceives him a little bit, saying that we don't want a wife from around here, send him away from the Canaanites. And so Jacob is on his way to find a wife among Rachel's clan. How does Jacob feel at this point? We obviously can't interview him, we don't know, but it would seem fairly obvious to us. He's a human being, he's undoubtedly lonely, he's insecure, he's discouraged. We may, he may cheer himself to some degree with the prospect of finding a wife in Haran, but whatever the case, he's leaving behind everything that he knows. Whatever is on his mind as he does that, one thing we can be sure, Jacob does not anticipate running into God anytime soon. He is effectively, at, in this spiritual condition, oblivious to God's presence. But that's going to change here in Genesis 28, beginning at verse 10. In this section, we have (coughs) a twofold division. First of all, God reveals himself to Jacob, and then Jacob responds to this revelation. God reveals himself to Jacob. Verse 10, first of all, at a place. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Let me stop there just briefly (coughs) to continue with the setting here. Jacob leaves his home in southern Cana at Beersheba, the very southernmost extent of what will become uh, Israel's land. He enters onto a journey several hundred miles northwest Mesopotamia, so he's going to be traveling across the Jordan, northward, and then eastward to Mesopotamia. So just like his grandfather Abraham before him, Jacob leaves his homeland and everything that he knows. He even follows the same route as Abraham took, just in the opposite direction. Now remember chapter 24. Abraham is in the land. He sends a servant to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. But Jacob's sin of deception means that he must make this journey. And he is apparently traveling alone. We don't know that for sure, but there's never an indication that he's traveling with anyone at all. Verse 11. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. A certain place. I'd like you to focus on that phrase. A certain place is very critical to the author here, to Moses, as he writes this account. This place has a name. 
But Moses very carefully avoids telling us where it is because it doesn't fit into the account. He doesn't want us necessarily to know what the name is. He wants us to see that Jacob just happens upon this place. It was not predetermined resting site for Jacob. It was just a place. Now put yourself in that situation. There's no streetlights. There are no cars with headlights. There are no flashlights. There are no Coleman lanterns. The sun goes down, you go down. And so he lays down to sleep with a stone under his head. The Hebrew here is more nebulous, and you might see that in your marginal note. He put, the Hebrew reads this way, then he put what head of him? Uh, or we could read it, then he put from head of him. So it's a very difficult phrase to know what is being intended here. It's not clear. We know that Jacob spent this night in the hills of Ephraim, which is a very rocky terrain, and this is my own conjecture, but perhaps, as some have thought, he, he put the, possibly the stone at his head, and I'm wondering, maybe he put a large stone there at his head and kind of crawled up under it so that if there was any uh, rocks that fell uh, that night, he'd be protected, or in some way he found refuge or protection in the rock. It's really difficult to say. It is possible that he took a large rock and rolled it to a softer spot and laid up against it as a pillow such. I don't think it's right for us to get the idea that it was a little, maybe, basketball-sized rock that he put behind his head like we would put a pillow. He's probably a larger rock, as the text will indicate, and he's laying up against it in some way or under it or by it. But not really clear to us in the Hebrew text exactly the relationship of the stone. But the stone is important for another reason. And, and it, we've all been part of the Sunday school class where the teacher waxed eloquent about how uncomfortable it would be to sleep on a stone. And what else can you think about? That's really not the point. The point here is that this stone is taken and will become something else other than a place for sleep. And of course, it wasn't a very comfortable night for Jacob. He's a refined man, remember? He dwells among tents. He's the white-collar brother here in the situation. He finds himself, though, now under the stars, sleeping on or next to a rock. As Kidner puts it so well, Jacob was thrust from the nest he was feathering back there in Beersheba. He's left home. Behind him is Esau, an angry tiger, breathing murderous threats. Before him is a long, arduous journey, shrouded in darkness. Under him, a rock, or next to him, but Jacob must have wondered what good the blessing was doing him right now. In this setting, as Jacob sleeps, he has a dream. Now, let me stop here just for a moment and remind you we all know that the Bible didn't fall down from heaven bound. At this point in time, there is no Bible. In the revelation of God, God has never left His people without a word. He doesn't appear to people every day as they're brushing their teeth by any means, but God has throughout time always revealed truth to His people. In this time, it was not the written word. In this time, it was through dreams and through visions. And sometimes God would audibly speak. Sometimes He would even come into the presence of an individual. Here, He reveals Himself to Jacob as Jacob sleeps. So this is, in a sense, Jacob's kind of Bible. His revelation. His truth from God. Verse 12 we read, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Let me stop there for a moment to make sure we understand this. First of all, I have to say the uh, NIV stumbles here 
There's a Hebrew word, hine. It occurs three times here very purposefully, and it's never translated. The reason is because it's the word behold. And we don't typically go around in modern English and say, behold, it's snowing. It is, by the way. Uh, behold, it's snowing. We don't use that word. So the NIV tries to help us there and not put in that old word. I wish they'd have put it in. Because it's a very important word that's found in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 15. And it's a way of saying, with flashing lights, look at this. Imagine this. Can you see this? It's a very uh, significant word as we go through. So we just have to read that in as we go. But one Hebrew scholar says the word goes with a lifted arm and an open mouth. Behold. I just did that, didn't I? I wasn't even thinking about that earlier. I said, look, it's snowing. Uh, it, open mouth and a lifted arm. It's, Behold. That's the idea here. Look. There are angels here, a stairway with angels of God ascending and descending. This is a magnificent revelation to Jacob. That's the point. An attention-getting word of astonishment. Jacob is shocked out of his socks as he sees this uh, image in his dream. A stairway, sometimes translated a ladder, as you see in the marginal reading. Either translation can be used it would seem that angels descending and ascending, that it might be kind of difficult on a ladder. So we probably have the idea here of a stairway. It doesn't really make a lot of difference. Jacob sees some type of stairway, some type of avenue between heaven and earth with angels coming up and coming down. Obviously in commerce. That is, they've got something to do between heaven and earth. Now in that day, a stairway between the netherworld, the realm of the dead and, the, uh, and heaven, was pictured as a stairway. So it's just a common concept in that day. I think God uses this common idea so that Jacob will get the point that there is commerce between the divine and the earthly realms. And that commerce links not only heaven with the netherworld, but it links heaven and earth. God unveils the interconnectedness between God and man, which the natural eye does not detect. But as dramatic as that revelation is, the angels are really almost an afterthought here. The Hebrew text, it, it just with amazing precision and beauty, starts to chop the phrases shorter and shorter as it brings us to what really matters, and that is verse 13, and above it stood the Lord. There was God. And again, the word behold is here. Behold, with open mouth and uplifted arm, there was the Lord. Above it might be at the top of the stairway, but the Hebrew again is very uh, loose here, and it could be that it was beside him, beside Jacob. Again, not necessary for us to understand. The point is, Jacob sees God. The veil has been drawn back, giving full weight to the beholds. In verses 12 and 13, one translator puts the Hebrew this way, There, a ladder. Oh, angels. And look, the Lord Himself. You have to get the idea here that Jacob's hair is standing up on end. He's tingling all over. He's, he's, he's thrilled with this image that he sees in this dream. So God confronts Jacob at a place, and he confronts him, he, he shows himself to Jacob, secondly, uh, with a promise, verse 13, there above stood the Lord, and he said, so 
So God not only appears, but He has a promise to give to Jacob. He appears, verse 13, and He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. Let me stop at that point. You see the promise here. Verses 13 and 14. The God of Abraham and Isaac. Jacob is obviously the generational link in the chain of God's people. God called Abraham The baton of faith was passed to Isaac. The baton of faith here is obviously the blessing being passed to Jacob. He will be the one through whom God's promise of a Messiah comes. When we think of Isaac and Abraham and the linkage to Jacob, what does it mean? As we've studied through the book of Genesis, it's very obvious. It's going to mean two things. It's going to mean what? A land and an offspring. That's right what we see here once again in the promise of God. A land and an offspring. Note the obvious connection between the promises here to Jacob and those made earlier to Abraham and Isaac. Very clearly connected to those earlier promises in chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17 and on and on we go through the text. You notice there in verse 14, even the the reference to east and west, that goes back to chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. You remember when Lot was sent off, or he went off and took the the fertile uh, land and the plain. What did God say to Abraham? Look over this land. Look to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. This will be your land. Same thing he says here to Jacob. Same promise. That promise is repeated over and over and over again. You will have an offspring and you will have this land. I give you this land as my promise to you as my people. All people, it says here on earth, will be blessed through you. Echoes of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 when God called Abraham. Through you, Abraham, all people on earth will be blessed. We looked at that passage in Galatians last week to say that that was, in a unique form, the gospel. That through Abraham, all nations would be blessed, ending, of course, in Messiah, whose death and resurrection and life will be a blessing to all peoples, all nations. Jacob, that's you, says God. You receive the promise that I gave earlier to Abraham and to Isaac. Who's Jacob? Jacob has been grasping to get a blessing. That's what this has all been about in Jacob's life. Everything we've seen in Jacob to this point in the text is get, get, get. I want to grasp, I want to take, I want to possess for myself. God looks at Jacob and he says, you're not, it's not an issue about getting a blessing, you're going to be a blessing. You're going to pass on blessing to others. And that, pa- and that blessing will pass on through your offspring. You notice the parallels again with Abraham. So many. When did God tell him, Abraham, when did God tell him that he would become the father of a great race? What was Abraham's situation? An infertile wife. Incapable of having children as far as human eye could detect. And what does God say? You will have an offspring. Where's Jacob? You see the similar situation? He has no wife. 
He has no guarantee that he's going to find a wife, but God says you will become an offspring. God is stretching Jacob's faith as he stretched Abraham's faith. Abraham was called to leave Haran. Jacob is going to Haran. They're both in a very vulnerable situation, and God says, I will bless you. You can claim no blessing now, but I will bless you. You will see. You will have an offspring. And the land you're leaving, Jacob, you're going to come back there. This is your land because I'm sovereign God. And I have chosen it. And Jacob, I've chosen you. God's blessing continues in verse 15. And now it gets even more personal. Verse 15, I am with you, says the Lord, and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob says God essentially, yes, I am in this place. But Jacob, you step your foot down the path to Haran, and you know what? I'm going to be there too. And every step of the way from Haran and back again, I promise that I will not abandon you. Jacob, I am in this place. But Jacob, please know that I am in every place. I'm not like the gods of the pagans, limited to the border of my own country. I own the world. I called it into being. You go, and I'll be with you wherever you go. You notice here God does not chide Jacob. He does not rebuke him. He could have. Could have quite easily. You and I could have. If I'd have run into Jacob there and God said, go ahead, say what you want, I'd have a speech for him. You are a deceiving, lying, godless man. What is wrong with you? God, God says none of that. He could have, but he doesn't. The issue here is not Jacob's miserable past. The issue here is Jacob's bright future. And when God calls a child to himself, that always becomes the issue. Not the past, the future. God did not choose Jacob because he was good. God chose Jacob in the womb, chapter 25, because he wanted to. God had a plan to send his only begotten son, born of the lineage of Judah, to die on a tree in Jerusalem someday from where he would reign on David's throne. Jacob was created to be a father in that lineage. Why? Because God in his infinite grace and inscrutable wisdom willed it. Jacob deserved none of this. It was all of grace. And seeing this, a profound change begins to take place in Jacob's life. God reveals himself to Jacob. We move then to Jacob's response to God's revelation at verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. The Hebrew text is constructed in such a way indicating that Jacob is ashamed. I, I have failed to see God. Jacob never expected to run headlong into God. I like the words of uh, Hamilton who says, Jacob's expectation of encountering Yahweh somewhere between Beersheba and Haran were about as great as Saul's expectations of meeting the Christ somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus. I didn't see it. I didn't see him. I didn't know that he was here. I came here, and who knows what Jacob did? He probably kicked the stone. I got to sleep on this thing? He's probably worried and discouraged and upset and in an ornery situation, and he comes here and he never knew that God was there at all, and he sees it now. God was here. Verse 17, he was afraid. 
Fear is the response. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob says, I've walked right into God's house and I didn't even know it. Where do people usually go to get a sense of God? Where do they usually go? They usually flock to shrines, to temples, to great cathedrals, maybe to natural phenomena, stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or the latest sighting of Mary somewhere in the world. I was airplane once and talked to a lady next to me. Her mother flew all over the world wherever Mary had shown up recently. This, she just flew all over, whatever. If there was some sighting of Mary, she was there. She was an independently wealthy woman, and husband had died, and that was her life. She just traveled around to wherever Mary was. You see what's happening here with Jacob? There's no temple here. There's no shrine here. There's no natural wonder. There's no miracle that people claimed had happened here. This was just a place. This was any place. This was no place at all. But this was the gate of heaven itself, and the thought shook Jacob. I don't know exactly what he's thinking, but if God is here in no place, can God's in any place at any time. He can listen as you deceive your father and cheat your brother, as you blaspheme God by blaming him for helping you deceive your father, as you lie in your father's face, as you lie to your father, you say it that way. As Jacob comes to terms with reality, he's struck with reverential fear. God is here. And in the morning, Jacob's reverent fear is channeled into worship, verse 18. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Again, the Hebrew is not as precise as we have here in the English. So wherever the stone was, here is, however, the meaning, the point. He turns it upright, he places it, it seems, under, uh, sets it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Setting this stone upright, setting a stone upright in a unique way was a, it was a common way of making a statement in that day. I mean, if you see a stone that's standing upright, kind of almost like a little pillar, and it's not laying flat, it's obviously somebody's st- stood the stone up there. And they would do that often. They would mark fields with stones like that. Just pick them up and, and, and you might walk around and see a stone here and there that somebody put up to commemorate some event or to make some vow or something like that. And that's all that uh, Jacob is doing here. He's commemorating his dream. And he pours oil on top of the stone. Why does he do that? The idea is consecration. This common stone was ceremonially consecrated as distinct and special. And what is he doing? Why do you pour out oil? Jacob has a trip to take here, right? And this is like driving through the desert and pouring out a gallon of water out of your jug. It doesn't make any sense to pour out oil at the beginning of a trip. You need oil to cook. You need oil to stay alive. Maybe the olive oil to heal if you get cut or something like that, or your bruised feet as you're making this several hundred mile journey. Jacob takes the oil that he needs to sustain his life and he pours it out on this stone at the beginning of his journey. He's still in Palestine. It's worship is what it is. It's a pouring out of life and money to the glory of God. 
Abraham and Isaac have erected altars to the Lord in the promised land. Jacob sets a monument to commemorate his meeting here with God. The land is being marked by symbols of worship. God's people don't own anything outside of the burial plot that Abraham purchased. They own nothing in this land. They can claim nothing here, really. There's some wells, but no land outside of that burial plot. But there's altars. And there's now a stone wet with oil saying, Jacob saying, I'm worshiping God. Remember how he spoke of God to his father? He said to him, you're God. Now Jacob is beginning to worship God himself. Verse 19 notes that he called the place Bethel in the Hebrew. Very close here is our English, Bethel. Though the city used to be called Luz. In other words, and, and archaeologists tell us it was a fairly sizable city. And all the way through the text, the text just ignores the place because this is no place, but it's a place where God is. And so Beth Ale, Jacob names it Beth Ale, the house of God. But Jacob responds with awe. He responds with this consecration, the setting up of the stone, and he responds finally at verse 20 with a vow. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Jacob's journey is transformed because he is transformed. He left on this journey to escape murder. He left on this journey to find a wife. Now he travels in faith with a view to proving God faithful to his promise. The journey now has become a pilgrimage. And Jacob, a man of future-oriented faith. This is the only place on Jacob's route. This is a long, long trip. And it's the only place that we have any revelation as to what took place because this place, this setting, transformed the trip. And Jacob promises that if God will bring him back here, he will give a tithe. Then the Lord will be my God. If you see in the marginal, there's another confusing issue here in the Hebrew the uh, if-then clause might start at ver- then might start at verse 22. In other words, he may be saying, and if the Lord is my God, in other words, if you will have me, then, verse 22, this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. But here is what he promises. Here's what he vows. All that you give me, I will give you a tenth. In that day, there was a universal principle. If you were a genuine worshiper of whatever God it was, you gave a tenth of your income. Malachi put it this way, you don't give a tenth of your income to God, you rob God. So in that spirit, Jacob vows, bring me back here and I will worship you in sincerity. You will be my God and I will be a genuine worshiper. Jacob is, in a sense, putting God to the test. But there are echoes of genuine faith coming through his vow. He's going to tithe. How do we know Zacchaeus was really transformed by Jesus? Not because he excitedly jumped out of the sycamore tree. Not because he had Jesus over to eat. 
Why do we know that Zacchaeus was transformed by Jesus? Because the man who used to steal gave. Ephesians 4 and verse 28, genuine conversion evidences itself when the stealer becomes a giver. And here Jacob the grasper is becoming a giver. The one who wanted the birthright, the one who wanted the blessing, is now saying to God, I will be a giver. I will worship you. Get me back here and I'll worship you. Jacob's vision of God had begun to transform his heart and it transformed his journey. It took on a whole different meaning. Do you live as if God was everywhere? Step one, I think, is to realize it. God's not done with Jacob by any means here. Let me mention something in that in just a few moments. But step one is to realize that God is everywhere. Step two is to practice it with consistency. But we need to be patient. There is a journey between those two points of realizing that God is everywhere and practicing His presence in daily life. There's a journey there. There is a journey for Jacob. And as we lay out the whole narrative, we see that very clearly. Because there is a dream at the beginning of his journey revealing God to him. Guess when the next dream is? When he gets back into the land. He names this place Beth Ale. He names the next place Peniel. There's a dream at the front and there's a dream at the end and Jacob goes for 20 years into Padanaram, to, to Haran, where Laban is. 20 years he's gone. And when he gets back and gains that second vision of God in the land, he's still wrestling with God. He's still coming to terms with his faith in the Lord. There is a process between points A and B, between realizing that God is everywhere and experiencing that in our daily lives. Bethel is the first of a long series of faith-building events for Jacob, not the last. For people of faith, getting a vision of God is not a tap on the head with a magic wand. It is a dawn, the dawning of a star that ro- rises slowly. There's a very helpful section. I'd like to just read the whole thing. I won't take time to do that, but there's a very helpful section in Bruce Waltke's commentary on Genesis where he says that Christian, the Christian life is really divided into two periods of time. There is crisis time and there is common time, what he also calls chronos time. There's common time and there is crisis time. Most of your life is lived out where? Most of my life is lived out in common time. The mundane daily events that just go on, we just do our thing, we live our life. Nothing necessarily dramatic happens. Life kind of goes on a pace. Not to say that there's not unusual things that happen and, and certain events that are unique problems, but nothing really changes. We just kind of go on in common time. But then there's those moments of transformation, of crisis transformation that transform and shape common time. And the key, says Walking, and I think he's right here, is to respond in faith in the crisis so that common time is transformed by faith into an adventure. If we respond to the unique time of crisis in our life, whatever that crisis is, a unique vision and understanding of God, a unique trial that He brings into our life, a change of circumstances, a loss of a job, a change of environment, a marriage, a death of a mate, 
Whatever that change, that crisis is, in that moment we need to respond in faith or common time that follows the crisis will be a struggle all the way. So says Walkie that God's presence transforms our secular journey from a touring expedition into a sacred pilgrimage. Those are good words. It transforms our secular journey from a touring expedition into a sacred pilgrimage to the holy city with a holy God. Do you have a sense of the presence of God? Do you have the patience to know that slowly over time, God will hone you and change you? There will be moments of crisis, moments that are phenomenal and unusual. Respond in faith so that the journey can become a pilgrimage. And as you make that journey, secondly, let me challenge you with this, that God promises to be with you no differently than He promised to be with Jacob. God's not limited to one place at one time and one person at one time. He will be with you and He tells you so. I'd like you to notice John chapter 1, that we could put down some stakes here and have confidence in the presence of Christ with us. I believe that Jesus refers here back to this account in Jacob's life. In John chapter 1, beginning at verse 47, we'll pick up there, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here is a true Israelite in whom is nothing false. There's no guile. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, now this seems like it comes out of left field. But notice what Jesus says. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I think it is a clear connection. Now, there's a lot of interpretations that take place here as to what this means. But without getting into those interpretations and what they mean for Nathaniel personally, we can say, I think that Jesus draws from the Jacob narrative and he says, I am the connection between heaven and earth. You're going to see the, the angels of heaven descending and ascending on me as Jacob saw that same vision. I am the mediator between God and man. There's a ladder. There's a stairway between heaven and earth. And Jesus is that connection to us. Is Jesus here with us? John 16 and verse 7, Jesus said, it's really going to be better that I physically leave you because if I physically leave you, I will send a comforter to you. He will come, the Holy Spirit. He will indwell you. He will fill you. He will be with you. And so through the Holy Spirit, Christ's presence is with us wherever we go if we know Him as Savior, if we know the Lord as Savior. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Matthew 28, verse 20 and I will be with you always. If there's any further doubt, Hebrews 13 and verse 6 makes that very clear. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, says the Lord. That says to me that Bethel travels. 
Bethel moves around to where God's people are because God's not confined to one ladder in one place. As a matter of fact, Bethel became a place of absolutely despicable and godless worship in Israel's history. And at that time, Israel was called by God to worship at Jerusalem, not at Bethel. It's not that place that is the only issue. It's that God connects with earth. And in the person of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, He connects with you and with me. Now as He does, is this a promise? I'll be with you through whatever you go through. Is that a promise that life will be easy? What does it mean to Jacob and how does that apply to us? That God will be with you does not mean life will be easy. If it did, we would confuse morality with ease. If I do what is right, things go well with me. Simple equation. God separates virtue and reward so that we do not confuse them and so that we aim toward reward. And as we do, He builds our faith. Walkie says again of Jacob, that Jacob was situated between a death camp and a hard labor camp. Behind him Esau like an angry lion, before him Laban like a spider with a web wanting to suck him dry. Now Jacob doesn't realize all of that, what he's heading into. But Jacob has not been called here to an easy life. And it's not going to be any different for you and for me. In the journey of faith, between realizing that God is everywhere and coming to practice that in daily reality will take us through trials and difficulties where God can reveal Himself most clearly. And God is going to beat Jacob thin on the anvil of difficulty. Jacob doesn't know it, know it but in a few days, weeks, months, whatever, whenever he gets to Laban, he's going to probably wish that Esau had taken him out. Laban is going to make his life miserable. It's not going to be an easy situation for Jacob. But what he has is this promise. God will be with me. And He'll bring me back. And we have that same promise as God's people. The, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever you go through, He is there. Bethel travels. There's a stairway next to your head between you and heaven. There are ministering angels on it and God stands in your presence at all times. Is church ground God's ground only? Or is every place God's place for you? Let's bow for prayer. Father, we have very far to go in this journey of faith. We say things to people we'd never say if you were standing there with us. We do things in our homes we'd never do if you were standing there with us, visibly in our presence. There are thoughts that go through our mind that we'd never think if you were there with us. There are goals that we establish that we would never think of establishing. Things that we buy, ideas that we come up with, places that we go that we would never think about if you were with us. 
if there's anybody here alive, they're agreeing with me in prayer that that's the case. God, I pray that you will reveal to us and help us to see that in all of those cases, you are with us. The Spirit indwells us. The ladder to heaven is planted at our heads. And you are with us in every moment. God, may that strike fear into my heart like it has not ever before. And may it strike fear in the heart of your people. May it also strike in us a sense of joy and gladness and thanks. Because of sin, there's a sense of awe and fear and guilt. But because of, because of your promise, there is a sense and should be a sense of joy and gladness. And may we conform our lives so that every day becomes more and more exciting to be in your presence and less and less guilt-ridden. God, I pray in your grace that you would help this church and the people that are here today to practice the presence of God in their life. Help them to think about you. Help me to be aware of your presence when we're alone, when we're at home with our families, in the thoughts of our mind as we travel in the car or find ourselves anywhere alone or with other people. May we be aware of your presence in what we say, in what we think, in how we plan, in where we go, in what we do. Please, Father, answer our cry to you. May we, like Jacob, take this journey of faith with a future orientation and look forward to the reward when through the work of Jesus Christ we enter into your very presence and are with you throughout all eternity. When the faith becomes sight, God, hasten that day and help us, strengthen us, and encourage us as we make progress on that path of faith. This is my plea for your people. Here, those that are not here, and those that are throughout this world that hold up your name in truth. May we sense that you, that you are here, and that you are everywhere that we go with us to guide and to strengthen and to keep and to preserve and to protect and to comfort. May that be not just a theological belief, but may it be a practical reality in the way that we live our lives. Be our vision, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.